Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and that you are faithful even when we are unfaithful. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for all the many times that we have been unfaithful, all the many times that we rebel against you where we do not trust you, where we reject you, where we think we know better than you, when we chase after the idols thinking that they would make us happy. Lord, forgive us. Convict us. Help us to lay down our idols before you. Help us to cling to you and trust in you. Lord, thank you that you do not give up on us, that you sent your son to die on the cross for us, that you brought heaven to earth and you reconciled and redeemed us by the cross. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we open up the word, can you reveal truth to us? Can you open up our eyes, our hearts, and our minds? Can you convict us? Can you confront us? Can you help us to understand? Can you help us to, res- to repent and help us to respond in faith even when we don't understand? Can you help us to look to Christ, our Savior, our champion, our Lord, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God? to speak to us and make yourself known. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning. It's good seeing all of you guys. Uh, If you have your Bibles, let's turn to to John, uh, John chapter 1, and we're going to be in verse 35 as we're continuing our series uh, through the book of John. And so last week, uh, or, or we've said that our purpose uh, through John um, is, is really the fundamental question that John is addressing is not necessarily uh, who Jesus is, but rather who is the Messiah, who is the Christ, who is the Son of God. And in a sense, it's a, a question of identity. And what John is going to show us, that he is Jesus, that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. And, and so my hope for us in this series is that we would uh, continue uh, to see who Jesus is. And my invitation is going to be the same, so that you may believe in him and have life in his name. And so whether you have believed in him, that you will continue to believe in him. And if you don't believe in him, that you will start to believe in him and have life in his name, that you would look to Christ and cling to Jesus Christ. And so John starts off uh, his book and he makes some staggering claims about Jesus. He, He talks about the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word is God. And then he talks about the word became flesh. And with all these staggering claims that he makes. Obviously, it calls a witness to verify these claims. And so the very first witness that John kind of brings to the table to us is that of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist immediately, right off the bat, denies that he's the Messiah, denies that he's Elijah, denies that he is a prophet. And he doesn't really attribute any significance to his ministry other than being a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, making straight the way of the Lord. 
And then he kind of gives us a hint of the coming one and say, I'm not even worthy to perform the lowest task, that the one that is coming after me is so worthy that I can't even take his sandals off his feet. And really what we see in the life of John the Baptist is just this humble posture that he is walking in and his entire life and his entire ministry and the purpose and the significance of it is like a neon sign pointing in the wilderness to the promised one. And then John reveals to us, John the Baptist reveals to us who is the promised one, that he is Jesus, the Lamb of God, and his purpose is to take away the sin of the world. And so the initial question we have is, how did John the Baptist know that it was Jesus? And John said, the reason I know is because the one who sent me told me, the one you baptize, he will receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will remain on him. He is the promised one. And so when Jesus was baptized by John, what happened? The Spirit descended on him and remained on him. And John says, and he will also baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then John in verse 34 just kind of drops the mic and says, I have seen and I have testified that this is the Son of God. Now today, as we continue in verse 35, we're obviously John, John the Baptist is, is testifying, and you would think that his testimony will somehow create a response uh, among those who are hearing this testimony. And really what we're going to see is we're going to see the initial meeting uh, between Jesus and his potential disciples as Jesus is beginning to show signs and wonders as he demonstrates his power. And, and in a sense, these potential disciples in faith are attributing the correct titles to Jesus and they're saying these, these wonderful, significant things about Jesus. But I think it's important for us to understand uh, what they're saying is true but I don't think they're really understanding the full significance of what they're actually saying about Jesus. And so what we're going to see is they knew that Jesus could be the one they've been waiting for. They knew that Jesus could be the one that the entire Israel has been hoping for and waiting for. And they're thinking it is him. And John is going to show us how these potential disciples are responding to the testimony as they're following Jesus. So let's look at verse uh, 35 um, in John chapter 1. It says this, The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. And when Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you will see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, when we read this passage, it's often said that the call of the disciples in this passage almost seems to contradict the call of the, uh, of the disciples in all the other Gospels. So, for example, here we read about two disciples uh, who hear the testimony of John the Baptist and on their own accord decide to follow Jesus. And Jesus confronts them and really saying, what are you looking for in life? 
And they don't really know, so they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. But when you read other parts of the gospel, you don't read the story. So, for example, in, in Matthew chapter 4, this is what we read in verse 18 to 20. It says, as he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, basically that's Jesus walking, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And we're going to find out who these guys are later on in John. But they were casting a net into the sea, and they were, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Here's two stories of two brothers. The one story is telling us that they're kind of with John, hearing what, 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 what John says about Jesus, and on their own way they're following Jesus. But in Matthew, he's telling us, in a sense, that they're minding their own business, doing what they always do. And Jesus walks by and he looks up at them and says, hey, follow me, because you're no longer going to actually fish for fish. You're going to fish for people. And immediately they left everything and follow him. And so, so the question we've got to ask ourselves is, like, which story is true? Like, like, it almost seems like these two things are contradicting. And if you hate the Bible, you can say, see... The Bible contradicts. But I think if we look closer to the text, there's definitely an explanation. If we look at John chapter 1, verse 35 uh, to 37, notice that Jesus does not call them. They attach themselves to Jesus based on John's, the Baptist's testimony. So in a sense, I think the best way to look at John chapter 1, this passage, comparing it to Matthew chapter 4, is that this experience is happening before Matthew chapter 4. And since they experienced this first by hearing that Jesus is the Lamb of God by John the Baptist and on their own accord following Jesus, wanting to, to kind of investigate the claims for themselves, now all of a sudden when we read Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus is just walking by and say, hey, forsake your livelihood, forsake everything and follow me, now all of a sudden that makes sense because who in the world will give up their livelihood for some stranger that they don't know. No one would. But rather because they've experienced, they've heard the testimony of John the Baptist. In a sense, they've experienced a little bit about Jesus. And we don't know why all of a sudden they stopped following Jesus and went back to their livelihood. But now all of a sudden, this starts to make sense. And what we really see in this passage in John chapter 1 is these disciples are still in this stage of come and see. They've not committed to the come and follow me stage yet, but rather in the come and see for yourself. So, so let's break down John chapter 1 verse 35 because there's a couple of truths that we can learn from this. So, so again, John the Baptist again testifies and identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. And the reason why John the Apostle includes this is for in case you have missed it, for in case you've mis missed the identity of the Word that became flesh, John again testifies and says, He is Jesus. He is the Lamb of God. 
Now, with such staggering claim, you would think that those listening, it should have an impact on them. They should respond to that claims in one way or another. And what, what John the Apostle is showing us, yes, there are two disciples who heard what John said. They were kind of John's disciples. And now, because of the claim of John the Baptist, it intrigues them. And now they're responding and following Jesus. They want to investigate these claims for themselves. Now, who are these two disciples? Well, in verse 40, we'll find out that one of the first disciples is Andrew, who is Peter's brother, and the other disciple is not mentioned. Then tell us who the other disciple is, and, and so scholars debate, and I think many scholars assume that the other disciple is the disciple who never mentions his name. He always refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple, and so maybe speculation, I'm not, not saying let's put a lot of a stake into this, but more than likely it could be John who is the apostle that's writing the, the book of John. And so since John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the, the coming one, it's only natural and actually expected for people to respond and to follow Jesus. And in doing so, these two disciples that were John the Baptist's disciples, they did not forsake John the Baptist for a more prestigious leader, but rather they were just simply remaining true to the teachings and the significance of John the Baptist's ministry. What was the point of John the Baptist's ministry? To point people to Jesus. So John the Baptist was actually accomplishing what he set out to do. And so his disciples are not abandoning them, him, but rather following the teachings as they're following Jesus. And so these disciples heard and followed Jesus to investigate the claims for Jesus. So, so in a sense, this following could, could mean two things. It could either be like in this, the, the most uh, simple sense, hey, hey, wait up, wait, wait up, Jesus, just hold up, we're coming, we, we want to talk to you. Or it could be that this was the very first step they were taking and in, in, in committing to, to Jesus. And however we want to take it, they wanted to investigate these claims for themselves. But look at how Jesus responded. And notice this. So if you have a red letter Bible, uh, this is the very first red letter in the Gospel of John. The very first words of Jesus. And notice the very first word of Jesus. Notice the question he asked these two disciples in verse 38. It says, what did he say? What are you looking for? Maybe in some of your translations it will say, what are you seeking? So, so if you're taking notes, here's Jesus' question. His question to his potential disciples. His question to the readers of John. His question even to us is this question. What are you looking for? Maybe another way of saying is, what are you after in life? Like, what do you really want in this life? And really what we see in this question, the Word made flesh, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lamb of God, He confronts those who show any sign of wanting to follow Him, and He demands that they articulate what they really want in life. 
And so this question not only just confronts these two disciples, but I think this question confronts all of us. Like, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? What do you really want in life? And how did these disciples respond? The disciples said in the second part of verse 38, they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So, so in a sense, maybe they were confronted with such a profound question that they really didn't have the answer. And because maybe they didn't have the answer, they're thinking, okay, well, this is a good question, but can you tell us where you stay so that as we're processing this question, maybe we can meet with you throughout the week and kind of process it together. Maybe, you know, so that we can know where you stay and privately discuss this question as we're trying to figure out the answer. And what does Jesus say? Not only does he pose them a significant question, what are you looking for? But if you're taking notes, look at Jesus' invitation. His invitation to these disciples that did not know the answer to the question is, come and you will see. Come and you will see. Like, Like Jesus just gives such a simple and yet profound invitation. Come and you will see. He doesn't turn them down for not having the answer. He doesn't say, you know what? When you figure out what you want to do with your life, when you figure out what you really after and what's really important to you, then, then you come and then we can talk. But as they did not know the answer, he says, come and you will see. And this is the point that John is making about the word that became flesh, the Lamb of God. He, he confronts us with this question, what do you really want in life? And even though we don't know the answer, he invites us in to come and see. And so in a sense, by Jesus inviting them in, he is alluding to himself and being the answer. But like if you think about this question, what do you really want in life? Like what would our answer be? Well, I want to be happy. I want purpose. I want significance. I want meaning. I want to know that my life counts for something. I want comfort. I want security. I want identity. I want people to recognize me in a sense. I I want prosperity. I want a wife. I want a kid. I want kids. I want a family. I want to be surrounded by people that love me and and care about me. See, these are all answers we could possibly give to this question. And by Jesus inviting them in to come and see, in a sense, what Jesus is alluding to is that where are you going to find all of these things? You're going to find all of these things by the one who is inviting you in to come and see. And his name is Jesus. And what he's going to do with his disciples is over time, he's going to show his disciples that everything that you are looking for in life can only be found in me. For I fulfill all things. And on the surface level, he's just inviting them in. And even though they're not seeing the real picture, 
Notice the significance of what John is trying to show us. And so for the rest of this text, we, we find out that they spend the rest of the, the day with Jesus. John doesn't really tell us what they've discussed or, or how they process things. But, but rather what John shows us in, in verse 40 is the result of them spending the day with Jesus. And look, look at the results in verse 40. It says this, Andrew Simon Peter's brother was one of the two who heard John and followed him. Verse 41, he first found his own brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. And when Jesus saw him, he said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So what's the very first thing that, P, that, that's, that Andrew does after spending time with Jesus? He goes out and he gets his brother Simon. And, and so what we start to see is the most common and effective Christian testimony is the private witness of a friend to friend or a brother to brother. And so Andrew was quick to share the news with his brother saying, we have found the Messiah. And even though he is claiming that, I don't think he's fully understanding and comprehending what he is saying. I know he has, a, he has an expectation and a hope that this could be possibly Jesus because they've been waiting for so long for the Messiah to come and all the evidence are pointing to him. But what he's saying, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I just don't think it's fully clicking. All that he can do in his excitement is to invite his brother in to join what they have discovered. And what is one of the first things that Jesus says to Simon? He gives him a new name. Jesus assigns a new name as almost as a declaration of what Simon will become. Like this is not a prediction. Jesus is not predicting this. Jesus is declaring of what he will make of Simon. You will no longer be called Simon. From now on, you will be called Peter. Now, I think two things. The first thing is, when we read it, we're thinking, well, that's strange. Like, why would Jesus just kind of say, hey, yeah, I don't like the name Bob. I'm just going to call you Bill. Like, like, that's just strange. Like, the very first thing he knows, nothing re really, he sees Simon. He says, yeah, Simon, you're no longer be Simon. You're going to be called Peter. Like, 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 what's going on in this? Because as we read, we're thinking, that's just strange. Well, maybe that's just what they did in their culture. I think, first of all, that's strange, and that's not what they did in their culture. Because to name a child was only reserved for the parent. It was, in a sense, a, a privilege where they were predicting this is what we think our son or our daughter will become. And so they gave them names with significance. And when Jesus is saying, you will no longer be called Simon, you will now be called Peter, what he is saying is, Jesus who knows people thoroughly, who sees people, he calls them and he makes them into what he calls them to be. 
This is what we're seeing in our text. So, so if you're taking notes, Jesus gives us a hint of his work. So we see Jesus' work. He makes you into what he calls you to be. He makes you into what he calls you to be. Like, think, think, think about this. Our focus shouldn't necessarily be on, well, what did Simon mean? What does Peter mean? Even though it might help us. But rather, our focus should be on what Jesus is displaying. And what is he displaying here? He, he's displaying that he knows people thoroughly before he even meets them. And we're going to see later on in our text when it comes to Nathaniel. He sees people. He calls people. And then he makes them into what he calls them. And so what John is showing us, we're discovering about this word that becomes flesh, the Messiah. Not only does he confront us with a question, but he invites us in. And now we discover something new. He sees us, he knows us, he calls us, and he makes us into what he calls us to be. Now, now think about the significance of that and what that means for our lives. Jesus calls us to be righteous and holy. How does that work? Do we become righteous on our own? Do we become holy on our own? Do we go back and say, oh man, this calling he's given me is just too much to live up with. I need to forsake my unrighteousness and become righteous. I need to forsake my unholiness and become holy. No, what does that look like? He calls you to be righteous and he calls you to be holy. And what does he do? He makes you into what he calls you to be. He calls you to be righteous and holy, and he makes you righteous and holy. And he gives his disciples this hint of the work of what he came to do. And how is he going to do all of this? Through the cross of Jesus Christ. And in the rest of the text, we now see how Jesus' disciples were at least wanting to follow him, calls other disciples to himself. Look at verse 43. It says this, The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of, uh, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And so as the witness of Jesus continues, now Philip is being called by Jesus. And what was Philip's first response? To go and tell Nathanael that we have found the one, his name is Jesus, and he is the one that Moses and all the prophets wrote about. So now in John's gospel, not only do we have the testimony of John the Baptist, but now we start to see his engagement with his disciples. And now even his disciples are making these staggering claims about Jesus. Think about the radical claim that, that Philip was making, the entire hope of Israel the one that everything was hinged on, that Moses talked about and all the prophets pointed us, we have found him. But notice how he identifies Jesus as the son of Joseph from Nazareth. I just think there's a ton of irony in this, and I don't have time to unpack the irony. 
But let me just tell you, the Messiah does not come from a carpenter, nor does the Messiah come from Nazareth. And we're going to see it in Nathaniel's response. But really what John is showing us is that the God has answered the prayers of generations after generations who have prayed for the Messiah to come, and he has answered it in the most unexpected way. And this is how we, we, we know how a Messiah does not come from a carpenter's son and does not come from Nazareth. Because look at how Nathaniel responded in skepticism. Verse 46, he says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel asked him. And what did Philip say? He said, Come and see. You see, Nathaniel understood that the Messiah is not supposed to come from so podunk town. The Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem, not, not, not from Nazareth. And what good can come out of Nazareth? And what's Philip's only response to skepticism? Come and see. And so here we see Nathaniel being very skeptic and Philip inviting him in to come and see for yourself that Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth, is the Messiah. And look at verse 40, uh, 47. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And what Jesus does is he displays his supernatural knowledge. He's pointing that that Nathanael is a a true Israelite. And what what does he mean by a true Israelite? I don't think he is saying that Nathaniel is like a pure breed and that he's 100% Jewish or that he is super patriotic. I think what Jesus is saying is that here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. In a sense, Nathaniel might have been blunt in his criticism and in his skepticism. But in a sense, his motives was pure because why? Nathaniel knew the scriptures. He knew the promises. He didn't just go after uh, the rumors and just followed it blindly. He knew from a sense a Messiah was going to come, but there's no way a Messiah can come out of Nazareth. A Messiah could only come out of Bethlehem. And a Messiah shouldn't be the son of a carpenter, but rather the Messiah should be the son of a king. From the line of David. And so in a sense, what Jesus is saying is, like I see no deception in you. You're looking at the evidence from a right perspective and you're questioning it rightly. I'm not holding that against you. And then look at how Nathaniel responded in verse 48. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. And it says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Here we see Jesus displaying his supernatural power. And we see Nathaniel moving from skepticism to now confession and proclamation. And and look at what what Nathaniel uh, proclaims. He says in verse 49, Rabbi Nathaniel replied, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. 
And really what we see so far in the text, we see ordinary men meeting Jesus. We see some with hope and expectation. They're all excited. And then we see some with kind of skepticism. And yet all of these ordinary men, those with expectations and those with skepticism, what do they declare and proclaim at the end of the day? You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And even though they're declaring these things, again, I don't think they are fully understanding the significance of what they are saying. And so, and so, and so yet, they're so moved by it. And this is what John is showing us. Look at what his own disciples are saying, even in the midst of expectation and skepticism. Now, now what does uh, Nathaniel mean by, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel? R- real quick here. Um, and hopefully throughout the book of John, we'll kind of unpack these titles a little bit more, but I just want to maybe lay a good foundation. The, the term son of God um, was normally applied to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So, so for example, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, uh, God told Moses, and you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. Then in Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, When Israel was a child, I loved them, and out of Egypt I called my son. So the title, Son of God, was, was normally referring to Israel in the Old Testament. But then as the story of the Bible unfolds throughout the Old Testament, it began to become clear that the true Son of God wouldn't be a nation, but rather would be one man. And so we see in Psalm 2, verse 7, I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. And so when Nathaniel is saying that you are the son of God, he is saying in a sense, you are the true Israel. You are the Israel that we could never be because you are the chosen and anointed Son of God. And not only is he a true Israel and the Israel that we could never be, but he's also the King of Israel. And later on, it will be referred, he, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. And so little by little, the fullness of Jesus is more and more revealed as he confronts his followers and they're compelled to tell others about him. But, but let's move on for the sake of time. Look at how Jesus responded to Nathanael's declaration, proclamation in verse 50. Jesus responded to him. Do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than this. Then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on on the Son of Man. Now, for us, this verse really doesn't make any sense. You're like, well, what is he talking about? But we have to understand, who's John writing to? Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to Jews. Jews are familiar with the story. They're familiar with what Jesus was sharing with them. And so in verse 51, the verse that Jesus was referring to, he was referring to an event in Genesis chapter 28, verse 10 to 22, when Jacob was on the run from Esau. Jacob just deceived his dad. He deceived his brother. 
In a sense, he stole the first birthright, and and Jacob was fleeing for his life. He's tired, he's weary, he's discouraged, he's full of deception, and he is far away from God. But what happened? God came to him and met him where he was. And God confirmed his covenant And he bridges this gap between heaven and earth with a ladder where angels were ascending and descending from heaven on a ladder. And what is Jesus saying in this verse? He's not just referring to some story, but rather what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel and to his disciples. I am that ladder. I am that one that bridges the gap between heaven and earth and coming to redeem. I am that ladder that brings you to God. I am the one that bridges the gap and brings you to God by redeeming and reconciling you. So so, so let's wrap this up. So as these disciples are confronted and introduced by Jesus of Nazareth, everything changes. Jesus asked them, what are you looking for in life? And even though they don't really know the answer, Jesus invites them in to come and see. And I think for us, we should pose this question for our own lives. As we read the book of John, as we're introduced to Jesus the Messiah. And I think a question that you should ask yourself is, what are you really looking for in life? What are you seeking? What are you after? And I think there's three truths that, that we can really learn out of this passage of where we see the gospel. I think the very first one is the good news of the gospel that we see is Jesus is showing us he is everything we are ever looking for and seeking. That's the very first thing we can see. Jesus is everything we are looking for and seeking in life. I think the the, the second thing is this, the good news of the gospel is that he makes us into what he calls us to be. He doesn't just call you and say, hey, you be righteous, you be holy, and then you're on your own to try to figure it out. But he calls you and he makes you into what he calls you to be. And the last truth is that the good news of the gospel is that he comes and he bridges the gap between us and God. He meets us where we are in life. He brings heaven to earth and he bridges that gap between us and God where he redeems us and he reconciles us to God. And how is he going to do it? We know eventually through the cross of Christ. Now, as we get ready to sit at the table, I think that this table, the Lord's table, really teaches us these three truths in a visible form. Because when you think about the very first truth, Jesus, everything we're seeking and looking for, what's on this table? It's the the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, bread and wine. 
And, and what Jesus is, in a sense, showing us is that everything that you're looking for, everything that you are needing can be found in me. I am the bread of life. Not only do I give you life, but I sustain your life, and without me, you cannot exist. It is my blood that will cover your sins. It is my blood that will declare you righteous and make you holy. It is my blood that will make you new and save you. And so in a sense, we see at this table that everything we're ever looking for in life can be found in Christ. And so when we find ourselves in the world distracted of wanting purpose and wanting significance and wanting power and security and comfort, and we're bowing down to our idols thinking we can get all of these things, we come to the table and we are reminded that those things we're chasing after cannot fulfill us. The only thing that can fulfill us the only thing we are truly are looking for and seeking for in life can only be found in Christ and so when we eat and when we drink we are reminded that he fulfills every single longing in our hearts he makes all things new he gives us purpose he gives us significance he gives us power he gives us security he provides for us comfort all of it can be found in him and we see this at the table. The, the second truth, and I want to show you how that table impacts, is that he makes you what he calls you to be. Why can we sit at this table? Because we're so awesome? Because we're righteous? Because we're holy? No, we're reminded that the reason why we're invited at the table is because of the Jesus who died for us. And because he died for us, he declared us to be righteous. He declared us to be holy. And so when we come to the table, how does God look at us? He doesn't see us in all of our imperfections. He doesn't see us in all of our sin. He sees us as righteous and holy because of Christ's righteousness on our behalf. As we responded in faith to what Christ has done for us. And so when we come to the table and we feel like we failed this week, and we feel unrighteous, and we feel dirty, and we feel unholy and unworthy, we're reminded that we get to sit at the table not because of our performance, but because what Christ has done for us. And we clinging to the promise that because he has called me, he is going to make me into what he has called me to be. I'm trusting him. I'm looking to him. I'm longing for him. And then the third truth of Jesus is that ladder. He bridges the gap. He brings heaven to earth. Think about this table. This is the Lord's table, and this is only a shadow. But what this table represents, it is the people of God, the family of God, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, sitting, eating, and drinking in the presence of God. It is a shadow of what is to come. And so when we find ourselves lonely, when we feel like we're far away from God, and we feel like God does not answer our prayers, God does not listen to us, God does not care, what does this table remind us of? It reminds us of the great wedding banquet, the feast, where we, in a sense, are getting to sit in the presence of God, and it is only a tiny taste of what is to come. And you get to sit at your father's table 
as sons and daughters, heirs to the kingdom in the presence of God. And one day at the great wedding feast, faith will no longer be required because where is God? He's right there. But for right now, faith is required because even though we don't see God, we know what God has revealed. I am with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And when we eat and we drink, we declare the Lord's death on our behalf as we cling to these promises that everything we're looking for can be found in him, that he is going to make us into what he calls us to be, and he has bridged the gap and allowed us to enter into the presence of God by reconciling us and redeeming us. Let let me pray for us, and then we'll ask um, our ushers to distribute these elements. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you've done for us. God, I'm so grateful that you come and meet us where we are. You don't just stand from heaven and shout, say, come and ask us to come to you, but you come to us. Lord, I am so grateful that everything we've ever been looking for in life can be found in you. Lord, I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing, that you make us into what you call us to be. Your calling seems impossible for us, but it's possible because of the work that you are doing, the work that you have done, and the work that you're going to do. And so, Lord, help us as we distribute these elements. Help us to meditate on these truths. Lord, you know what's going on in each one of our lives. You you know uh, for those that are chasing after the wrong things. Lord, I pray that they would reorient knowing that every longing, everything can be found in you. And those who feel like they're failing, Lord, I pray that they would meditate and trust that you are making them what you've called them to be. And those who feel far away from you, Lord, can you remind them of your presence as they get to sit at this table? Help them to meditate on these things. In Jesus' name, amen. As we distribute these elements, meditate on these truths. Cling to these gospel promises and let's share it together. Thank you. I don't know what's going on in your life. Well, maybe I have an idea, but Jesus knows all, sees all. And in a sense, he calls you. And I want you to think about this. Everything that you are looking for in life can only be found in Christ. Think about that. Think about the calling he has placed in your life. Think about the promises he's given you. He doesn't just call you and then you develop yourself, but he promises to make you into what he calls you to be. And he promises that he'll never leave you and never forsake you. For he is the one that have reconciled us to God and he has redeemed us. And all of these truths and so many more are wrapped up in his body and blood that was broken for us. And I don't know what truth is more significant to you. But wherever you are in life, as you're eating this bread and drinking this cup, I want you to meditate on these truths and thank the Lord for it.
his body that was broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of him. Take it, eat it, and thank the Lord for it. This cup that represents his blood that was shed for you, the new covenant that you have in him. Take it and drink it and thank the Lord for it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your incredible mercy and grace that you've lavished on us. Lord Jesus, thank you that everything that we are needing and looking for in life can only be found in you. That you satisfy and you fulfill. And can you help us reorient our hearts Can you help us to stop chasing after fool's gold and start chasing after you? Lord, can you help us to be reminded that you who began a good work in us will complete it, that you've called us and you're making us into what you've called us to be? Can you help us to be reminded that you are close? You've reconciled us. We belong to you. And no one can separate us from you. And that you are always with us. We thank you for that. And we praise you for that. And we give you all the glory. And Lord, help us to believe. Help us to continue to believe so that we may have life in your name. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand. Let us worship our King.